Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. And action. <laughs> hey, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Pandora Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Melissa Cady, uh, who has shrunk herself down to fit in the milieu and have a, a, a direct discussion with the COVID virus on, on why it has really decided to invade our planet at this time. And I'm on the safe safe stand and I've decided to actually move off into outer space here. So uh, that's some social distancing. <laughs> I've got some serious social distancing going on. <laughs> well I am I'm hugging the the I'm not I'm less than point two microns apparently or something like that. But you're so very up and close and personal. It just bashes in your face. Bang bang yeah bang. they're you just know, you know like you know balls running around there. But yeah. yeah. If you don't have a mask to block it, you might as well shrink down so much that it can't get into your mucous membranes. Right, right. I do want to learn how to destroy it, but you know, that might take some time. (laughs) Uh, On a serious note, I I know this is changing our lives um, in ways that uh, no one could have imagined, you know, six months ago. uh, Six days ago. Right, exactly. Well, it it really has taken, I think, several of us, even in the medical profession, because I think, you know, we recognize that the immune system is such a critical component. It's not just this, you know, virus, it's how you receive it and how you respond to it that can lead to devastation. And um, yeah, I think it's it's, uh, something that even the last, like you said, last five days, um, I'll say from my from my point here in, um, in fact, I'll show you a little bit. This is Sixth uh, Street in Austin. That's shut down quite a bit of, uh, you know, obviously restaurants, bars, gyms. Um, it's pretty desolate. You know, there's one car there. I did a little drive around just so we could, you know, we we didn't get outside the car, but we just tried to see what the city's looking like and keep us from getting a little cabin fever. But uh, but it really has. Um, to the extent that the governor here in Texas has implemented a law um, or taken away the restrictions where people can do telemedicine um, without worries of HIPAA, which is a lot of the privacy, you know, for patients, as long as they're aware that you're doing the best you can using, you know, some type of technology to try to communicate with patients. But it's basically saying that physicians, providers, at least physicians can still get paid equivalent to seeing a patient in the office as long as they're engaging in the telemedicine and um, document appropriately. So there's a lot of things um, happening on, on our side. Um, anything on your side and the Oregon side of things? Well, the, we have to side the shelter in place. And I think the, uh, the emphasis on tele, telemedicine and things like that is, you know, they've been doing that for probably the last week kind of pushing hard with that a lot of triage um obviously a lot of stuff that just makes like it, it shouldn't have taken a crisis to do this but um really you know if it, sometimes i guess it takes a crisis to to change and get that inertia out of the way um there's a lot of more obviously that needs to be done but it's it is kind of interesting how all these really 
you know, huge hurdles that people have been complaining about for years all of a sudden evaporated. Um, and telemedicine is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that I think, uh, I, I, I haven't followed this super aggressively, but there's big, this strong push to, to decrease this licensure requirement for state licensure. And what I mean by that is um, if you're a licensed physician, being able to practice now against state lines because they're anticipating, you know, New York's getting just hammered by this and they maybe need physicians coming from someplace that isn't, you know, isn't inundated yet. Uh, and that also brings into it is, is it doesn't make a lot of sense to have all these individual licensures other than the entire business that surrounded that, you know, um, it, where every state has their own requirements, has their own board, has their own CEs, although they're almost all the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of been kind of stupid is why, you know, why having all these different state regulatory agencies when you really probably just need one. Uh, right. So that's kind of been interesting, you know. Right. There, there is a, um, I'm forgetting the title of this uh, consortium where they're trying to get where it makes it easier for a physician. Like in Texas, it's pretty difficult uh, or timely or time consuming for people to get their medical license through the board. And I know that uh, Texas is not part of this consortium that's out there where they try to expedite to get a, another license in another state. Um, if your primary license is in, you know, one of those consortium type of states and, you know, it makes it a lot easier for you to get another uh, license. But uh, like you said, it's, there's a lot of things we shake our head about that doesn't make a lot of, you know, logical sense. Um, if you're in the United States and you have a license in a state, you, you know, with maybe some caveats, you should be able to, it'd be a lot easier to cross state lines be able to help people um, in times of need like this or or maybe in a telemedicine type of way it depends what you're you know obviously if you're an obstetrician and have a patient that you need to do an ultrasound on I mean it's possible you could help guide guide someone um, from across the state line and interpret ultrasound if that was allowed Um, uh, I know there are some you know uh, exceptions with like labs and or just reading MRIs or something like that but still I think there's definitely um, I think this is uh, the beginning of considering the reasonableness of how we're, how we're licensing and allowing people to help. Well, and, and, um, and we really should be amplifying and, and utilizing the technology that we have rather than practicing in a model, you know, you know trying to shove everything into something that's 60 years behind the times. Right. Um, you, so from, you know, granted, if you're an obstetrician, you're not going to be able to touch the belly and, and palpate and then do your ultrasound, but you can do routine prenatal care, right? right? Instead of having people come into the office, which is a total disconvenience for them, um, subjects them to risk because they're now coming to a medical facility. Uh, and, you know, routine, routine care instead would be like you can do it online. You can do it through some sort of video conference. And then if there was a problem, you can ask them to come in. Now, obviously, if, it, if it's a due date for, you know, they have their specific ultrasounds or specific lab or what they have to do, then they would come in for that. But you, could you think from a patient standpoint how that would change instead of having, you know, eight prenatal visits and all of them in being in the office, in which case you have to take time off work, find a place to park, blah, 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 all that other stuff. Instead, you can actually do that on a more convenient basis for both you as well as the clinician that's involved with this. And then if you think on a... Um, I kind of think from, from, from just like the urgent visits that we have, if you, 
you have cough, cold, you know, you're worried about being infected. Right. Now, before it was even COVID, what we did was we said, go to your doctor and more importantly, you know, what they end up doing because they're booked out with all these stupid chronic care visits for eight weeks at a time. They're like, well, go to the urgent care or go to the ER or whatever. So right. then you make these cesspits of, of viruses and bacteria where everybody's going into these waiting areas sick. Right. That makes no sense at all. Right. Like none. So why aren't we, you know, I'm hoping in the future because they're, they're trying to do it now, even with COVID is why aren't we screening people? by video and then they're then being able to kind of at least ascertain what their symptoms are and then figure out where to direct them next rather than pull them in sitting in a waiting room coughing all over the place touching everything exactly um, yeah so i mean it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see what happens out of this because there but there's always a little bit of a super silver lining right it's and I, it is going to fundamentally change how we deliver healthcare as well as well as healthcare itself i mean right. there's a whole lot of changes that are going to come from this with healthcare. Right. And, you know, just the fact that there's a certain level of concern or fear um, that people have knowing that this is out there, um, because we know we're, we're trying to flatten the curve by staying home and minimize the stress on, and strain on our healthcare system and making some really difficult ethical, you know, just having these ethical dilemmas of who can have a ventilator or not. I mean, we know we don't, we don't want to have that, but we know that it's not like this virus just goes away. Um, there's definitely this concern that another, you know, once people think they can get back to normal, there's still this potential for, you know, other little um, waves of this. And we don't, no one really knows um, if that's going to be significant or not. But um, I think people are going to wonder if they have the coronavirus when they get sick down the road. And so, you know, the developing testing, yeah, I know there's some, there's some articles that are coming out of potentially within 45 minutes, a test that's rapid. I mean, I haven't looked at the details of that, but eventually having a rapid test, you know, like we have these flu tests, you know, the typical flu that people have gotten um, that, you know, whether somebody is like what they're doing now at our primary care is they say, stay in your car. If you really think you need to be tested, um, you know, if, if they're, able to screen you without bringing you into the waiting room. Uh, we're trying to keep everyone away from each other. It makes sense that we have these, these testing approaches or screening approaches or even at home testing. If it's something, you know, we can drop ship within the day um, to verify what it is before you expose yourself to anybody else. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, possibilities that I think the future may be headed in, um, you know, but it's uh, like a lot of the experts that this is not just, we're just trying to, to stem the tide from being so incredibly huge, this first wave, I guess, so to speak. But uh, I, it's really hard for us to know how, how long this is going to you know, last. And it's going to change healthcare and, and a lot of hesitation, too, as to when to start seeing people in a way that seems somewhat normal. Well, and, and it's, it's going to be many, 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 many months, right? Mm -hmm. it's, and um you know, people keep talking about a vaccine, but the problem with vaccines is a coronavirus. And if I'm remembering correctly, coronavirus is like, is the same family as the common cold. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we don't have a virus for the common cold is because it mutates and there's 60,000 strains out there. Right. So, you know, we may end up with a, a vaccine for this specific strain, but again, that's 12 to 18 months down the line, if you really want to do it safely. And that's in a right. good scenario. Um, so this is not going away. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from other healthcare 
you know, standpoint in, in you're talking about the, the drive-by testing, you know, or being, that makes so much sense is examine them in the car. So at least, you know, their car's infected, but you're not bringing them inside. Right. The other thing, and I had a discussion with this with somebody the other day was um, it, it changed, it should be changing how we assess patients because this idea of, um, you know, physical examination, physical examination is, is definitely important, but physical examination should be targeted to what it is that you're seeing in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like this idea that, you know, you probably learned it in your medical school. I think it was kind of universal. It was like, you have to do a complete physical exam on every single patient, blah, 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 blah. That was a different time yeah. that came from. And the, we, first of all, people aren't, aren't the, di- the diagnosticians as they were 60 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, and when they had none of the testing that we have now. Right. And you're practicing and honing that skill. Um, but if you have someone and you're like suspecting that, it, that, that's, that it's COVID, then you want to minimize your exposure. So if they're coughing, then sure, that makes sense. Maybe you want to listen to their lungs. But if you can avoid even that sort of contact and you know that you have tap, you know, testing and things, and it, it doesn't make sense you're going to be, let me listen to your, your heart as well and do an abdominal exam when, when that's not in the, in the major complaint. Um, because now you're submitting the healthcare worker to increased risk. You're not in general providing any benefit to the patient because there's a very specific thing that you're looking for. Um, but we've traditionally done all that stuff, you know, not really because of any patient specific variables, but because it's required by billing. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're, if you're examining three to five organ systems, you know, heart, lungs, abdominal exam, skin, all that stuff, um, you can increase your billing code. Right. And, and we need to be really, really evaluating on, on how is it that we're reimbursing healthcare? Again, are we doing a values-driven approach or are we doing something that's gamification on how do we check as many boxes as we can so we can maximize reimbursement, whether or not it, it's justified in the scenario? And um, I, I mean, I, from, from pain standpoint, I will tell you, if you're in an outpatient clinic, they do like workshops on this stuff on how you can increase your billing code in a way that you're not going to get, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, audited. Right. So mm-hmm. there's the game there. How do you do it in such a way? That, and it's not, again, it's, this, it's not about patient benefit. It's about maximizing reimbursement. So, um, it, it may, I'm hoping that this will change too. And in, instead of, you know, checking all these little check boxes, it becomes, well, are you examining what you're supposed to be examining? Not a bunch of stuff that you don't need to be examining just because you want to, you know, upcode or whatever. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it doesn't make, if someone's super sick, it makes sense to see them in their car. And if they're, I mean, I shouldn't say that. If they're <laughs> not super sick, they're passing out. But I mean, they're, they're sick enough that you're kind of wondering whether they should stay home and eat chicken yeah. soup. If and yeah, it's infectious. Yeah. Just then say, you know, whatever. It's, yeah. It'll be an interesting, it's going to be super interesting Then the next, um, you know, six to 12 months for sure. It's going to be really, really yeah. interesting. This, yeah, I think if it's potentially infectious, um, you know, if you're running a fever, if you're having upper respiratory symptoms, like those, those make a lot of sense that as a general rule before Corona, that there should be some level of screening and distancing that goes on and protection and obviously, we're recognizing the dearth of um, personal protective equipment that's out there. Um, my friends who are in, you know, anesthesia and in the surgical realm um, really have been just not getting what they need. And 
um, unfortunately, uh, everyone's scrambling. Um, and so if we, you know, on a global level over the next three months, if we can get everything, you know, somehow have the production and manufacturing and the things in place for the next little waves, as people try to, you know, play with the idea of getting back into life um, so that we're prepared for any other resurgence. Um, you know, who knows? There's, there's a lot of, a lot of unknown, but uh, you know, I think the whole point of this, this episode is to talk about how, um, you know, the changes in healthcare as a result of this. And I think that trying to be pragmatic or practical about how we're approaching our patients is unfortunately kind of the silver lining um, behind this dilemma and making us realize what is it, what's the real value in healthcare and how should we, how, how should we um, um, judge it? And especially when it comes to billing, like you said, um, you know, to me, spending time with a patient is quite valuable, but many times that's not even appreciated that listening, giving time to the patient to actually talk. I mean, the, the things that I think have been really chipping away at the relationships, um, especially for chronic illnesses and chronic pain and getting to the root of those things. Most time in these infectious things, you want to keep it limited to what's only necessary. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's going to create a, a shift and a change. And um, unfortunately, in changes in ways where there's going to be some um, practices that are going to close, unfortunately. Um, I well, already know of a couple that are struggling to yeah, that are it, beyond three months. What's that? There, I was gonna, well, you say practices are closed, closed, unfortunately, but in in some ways, um, I mean, like permanently closed because of the hit. Yeah, and but I I also think that there's going to be a redistribution of how we deploy resources, right? So mm -hmm. the healthcare system is going to get completely un inundated, and it's going to demonstrate this old model that we had, where we we we've tried to you know, the, the majority of what people are seeing healthcare for is for chronic conditions. And so we've built up this whole thing around that. And now we have this an acute episode and it's going to demonstrate that um, when you have a bunch of sick people that you haven't really been taken care of for a long period of time, they get extra sick in these acute episodes. And then we have certain having problems. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and really we're not going to be able to deliver healthcare in that model. I mean, it was going to bankrupt us before it's going to bankrupt us now. And so, yeah, I know practices are going to, are going to go under. I wouldn't be surprised if health systems go under. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's an opportunity for something else to change. So when, when we're recognizing that if, you know, outside of the, the, this COVID crisis here, that when you're looking at somebody's health, it's less than 11% if you're kind of trying to pull it out um, is actually relevant to acute care, a delivery of healthcare resources. But most of your health is determined by social factors, learning factors, behavioral related factors, right? And so um, if we were keeping people healthy, and the, the other kind of interesting about this virus is it's not like SARS. So when, when SARS, which was 2000 and, when was that? 2000 five, six or whatever. It was, it was a while ago. But the yeah, scary thing about the SARS virus is it was killing young people because they were having these, these super power, like these super immune reactions to it. And as you're younger, your immune system tends to be stronger. 
um, the current COVID virus, while we're moving down the chain and getting younger people, it still is preferentially going after people with the weaker immune systems, which is why those over 65 and particularly those with multiple comorbidities are at risk. And you're looking at things like diabetes, where we have, we know there's immune impairment, right? Yeah. And heart disease too. And heart disease. So when you're, so you're looking at it, um, in the future, one of the best things that you're going to do when we have this thing floating around is not going away, is going to stay healthy. And so the system is going to actually have to start keeping people healthy mm -hmm. so that if they do get infected, they don't have the severe disease or it's much less likely that they're going to have a severe disease with that. And that is not what our current model does. So again, we're going to, we're going to see, um, there's going to be a lot of changes. There's going to be a lot of changes. Right. Inevitably, in the big picture, as our system has been um, making in, in a indirect and direct way, make, making and marketing to people as if they need to be dependent on medical interventions or the medical system, um, inevitably we've created this, this problem of, of them needing us more because of their poor overall wellness. So it's, it's really bit us on the behind because as a general rule, people, um, there are a lot of people that could be healthier with different lifestyles and, and different encouragement, support, and uh, more therapeutic relationships in the medical field, um, in my opinion. And um, I think, you know, it's not like you're going to be able to eliminate this pandemic, but I think as a general rule, like you said, if people don't even have to encounter the medical system, um, then the, the um, stress and strain on it wouldn't be as quite as big. You know, it's hard to say exact numbers, but um, yeah, I think, I think there's, there's going to be a realization from people that, you know, there's, you have to take responsibility for what you can do to help yourself too, not just, you know, hope a vaccine comes when we know that this is going to take time. And just like the flu, you know, just like, you know, I've never seen um, any numbers and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen as low as close to 20% up to maybe 45% effectiveness. These are not exact numbers, but it's never been an overwhelming close to the majority effectiveness of a flu vaccine from that was developed from the year before strains. So it's harder, I think, to get a herd immunity <laughs> in general, or to have the full effectiveness, I should say, against a, a flu that is mutating over time. Yeah, they, they mutate so rapidly, and um, and for the flu vaccine, I think it's the top three strains from the year prior, right? So they miss all the new stuff because these little things are mutating all the time, and so yeah. it, it's like you said, it's, it's never perfect. And some years they do a better guess, and other days, other years are not, which is why we have that wide range. Uh, right. It obviously does provide some partial benefit, just you know, because these there's more than one strain running around, and so you know, it, it, it is interesting that. Um, so even if we ever, if we do develop a vaccine, the likelihood of it having really high efficaciousness to it, like, like a polio vaccine, is between slim and none. So um, that, you know, that's a, you know, holding out this idea that somehow healthcare, magic healthcare is going to cure us. Uh, and all we're waiting, we're just waiting for that magic moment, just like in the movies, you know, like somehow they develop these vaccines in like two days in their basement using you know, somebody's, somebody's chemistry kit. Uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Again, the little understanding that I remember from uh, microbiology 
it, when it comes to to viruses specifically and coronaviruses is these things mutate fast. Yeah. So um, it's it's yeah. it's evolution survival. I mean, it it is finding a way to keep itself going, and it'll do whatever it takes. And the ones that you know can divert whatever attacks we're trying to will be the ones that you know come out ahead. You know, one thing I want to mention because I find that this is so common. Um, and I'm not going to mention the two drugs that other people have mentioned um, that have potential for, especially together, causing QT interval prolongation could cause cardiac death. Like, there's so many side effects from drugs that uh, just throwing these things around without any trials is uh, uh, not very responsible. Um, but in general, when it comes to things like antibiotics, I'm so surprised even in reading some articles how people believe that antibiotics like literally with the flu and stuff how people don't have the knowledge to understand that antibiotics are typically targeted to bacteria and it's based on the mechanism of action of are they targeting like the cell wall and i'm not saying an immunologist i did have a microbiology degree um, in my undergraduate but um, you know, that's the whole point is that viruses, you're, you have to support the system. The best thing is prevention or having a good immune system. Um, but most of these viral things that happen to people, you have to just support them through the process of your body trying to heal itself. And unfortunately, like, you know, Dr. Kevin, you said is that some immune systems overreact and actually cause damage to the, the body itself and our own human body. And that damage can cause problems and death. Um, and so those are things to consider. But I, I just wanted to emphasize, even though that there might be some modulation or changing or effect from an antibiotic with the virus, it's not, antibiotics are used towards bacteria. Um, that is the mainstay thing there when it comes to antibiotics. Yeah, they're, they're, my understanding is they're, when they're using the antibiotics as they're using them for super infections. So, mm -hmm. you know, for, for those that don't know, you get, you, it's like if you get a cold, right? You get a, a cold is a virus, antibiotics don't work against viruses. But when you have that cold, now your immune system drops you know it's because you're fighting something else now you're more vulnerable and then yeah. there's opportunity opportunistic infections those bacteria will come in and they can jump on top of it um it's really common with with lung type of infection so people get a viral uh, you know like a chest cold uh or a viral pneumonia and then the the you know as you're now you're compromised and then the bacteria come in i actually pretty sure that's happened to when i was in high school and i got pneumonia I'm almost positive that's what, what happened to me because it was like, I, you know, I couldn't breathe, and then um, that one like a week, and then and then I the the then I woke up one day dripping in sweat, like just dripping in sweat, and uh, and the whole thing changed. So I'm, and then I was actually prescribed antibiotics, and and then that sort of changed. But it, it's just it, it, it's it's much better if we can address this upstream right. than waiting for the downstream stuff. Um, just like anything. And unfortunately, prevention and preparation gets such a short shift. Uh, and certainly in, our, in the way our healthcare system, it, it doesn't really facilitate that. And again, while everybody's sitting here, we, we need ventilators. We need a lot more PPE. Again, personally, I would say do the PPE before we ventilators because that's, you know, how can we prevent the infection before people are, are requiring mechanical yeah, yeah. ventilation? That makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and PPE is cheaper to make than a ventilator. And that's personal protective equipment for those yeah, listening. That's the masks and the, and the gowns and the face shields and all that stuff versus right. a very complex piece of, of mechanics that requires to be, to be able to deliver positive pressure ventilation to somebody where it put, put them on a breathing machine. Like that's a big deal. 
making a mask is a lot smaller deal. Right. Uh, you know, but it's the, the more we can, it, you just need to think upstream. That's really what you right. need to think upstream. We need to focus upstream when it comes to health. You actually have to be doing the things to keep you healthy upstream. Does it guarantee that you're never going to get an infection, that you're never going to get sick? Absolutely not. Um, but I would much rather catch COVID with not a lot of other medical problems, with a pretty healthy cardiovascular system, uh, with no problems with blood sugars because I have diabetes or pre-diabetic state. Uh, I, it's, 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 a, it's a much better um, place to be in uh, than, than sitting on the downstream side, which is what we've done to people. Like, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. What we, we have basically been prescribing stuff for, for years now rather than actually addressing the root for chronic conditions of the vast, vast majority of which have to do with behavioral and lifestyle change. Are you moving? Right. Are you eating the right foods? Are you taking care of stress? Are you sleeping every day? And um, we just haven't been doing it. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. You know, one thing I wanted to add and, you know, just to tie into just the few things we mentioned is that, you know, this idea that sometimes, you know, even when parents bring their kids in and they, they swear up and down that it's bacterial. And finally, you know, we know that it usually takes seven to 14 days plus for these viruses kind of run their course. And so by the time you see a physician and or just demand to have an antibiotic given, and you think you're feeling better from that a few days later, it very much could have been just your body was that time period when it was starting to get around the curve and get better. Um, you know, so it's really hard to prove to people when they have this belief that the temporal or the timing of they got the antibiotic and then now they're better um you know obviously we're talking about viruses here and and um they do take time to resolve and and like dr kevin said you know there's there's no better time than now to really take your take responsibility for your personal health and obviously the social distancing these basic precautions that everyone's been speaking of and washing your hands um you know avoiding unnecessary contact with people and wearing special masks uh, of course there's a limit on some of the really good ones <laughs> but we're I'm sure it's being worked on but there's definitely no better time than now to actually do the things that improve your health and I'm going to mention a couple things that people don't realize most people know that people on steroids I mean it could be a really healthy marathoner that has a kidney transplant and has to use immunosuppression so it doesn't reject its own organ that it received. Um, but people on opioids long-term that depress your immune system. And these are one of the many realities of certain drugs that are used over a long period of time. And so um, I know that there's some physicians out there that have already activated um, information for their patients that if they're having trouble getting who knows for how long, their medications, even though there's, you know, some laws being shifted so that people can get their medicines. If there is any time to be inspired or, or find other ways to help yourself with pain um, and give yourself your own belief that you can help, you know, master your own pain or find ways to improve it, um, there's physicians out there that are giving some guidance on how, how to self-titrate over time. Of course, do that with your own physician, but those are... Um, you know, this is a time for a, a lot of people to rethink how they're addressing their own medical issues. Um, and I, I know people could take, you know, uh, have a problem with that. But I, if it was me, I'd, I'd be thinking about that myself, even from a cost standpoint. 
Well, you're in the middle of a crisis situation. And this is, this is, the, this is something that is, has bugged me for a long period of time between what I call the indifference between an empowering therapy and an entrapping therapy. Um, and people fall into, the, into getting trapped by those therapies so easily. But the problem with that is all you need is one little teeny thing to change. And now you're in big, big trouble, right? Because if you are not the one who is in control of the therapy, you're entrapped to somebody else to provide that to you. Anything that disrupts that adds an additional stress that is unneeded, and particularly when it's coming to pain. You know, so when we're looking at particularly persistent pain th- th- uh, scenarios, we know that active-based modalities, which are the things that you can do for yourself or who you can work with so that you can learn the skills so that you can deliver them yourself, are as or more effective than any passive modality out there. The advantage to them being is you control that modality now. So if I can teach you how to understand your pain, how to approach your pain, how to start deconstructing your pain, and then start taking these, these self-directed strategies, start addressing those, those primary contributors that are involved in that process, um, you can do that without me. And, you can, and if the healthcare system is like it is now, where, where all elective, you know, elective visits are, are being shut down, where you're not going to be getting in to see your, your, your doctor anytime soon because the clinics are being closed down in a lot of ways. So they make sure that they're, they're moving that protective equipment over to these highly acute situations. Um, doesn't that sound good? I mean, that's the, you know, that's what it's like, well, if I can help you to feel better without me or anybody else, that seems like it's way more valuable from a long-term standpoint than, than anything else. So, um, yeah, and I thank you for, for throwing that out there because people need to you know, understand that is um, the more that you can return control of, of your care to yourself when something bad happens like this, the less, you know, and this is already a very stressful scenario given what's happening in fears of infection and, you know, the economic fears, that's a lot of additional stressors. If, if you can just take that one out, you know, take out the, the concern about um, needing a specific medication or seeing some specific person every week or two weeks or three weeks or every six weeks. That seems like a gift to me in uh, no better time than now to really start engaging in that process. Right. And, and sometimes it's hard to believe that you can do that until you put yourself through the process, just like anything else. Um, especially if you've, you know, for years been approaching it a certain way, but as we've learned through, whether it's toilet paper or food or, you know, personal protective equipment that this country specifically is so spoiled with having this easily accessible um, supply chain. And we don't realize how when things get turned on its head, how suddenly the, you know, supply chain is not providing you with what you want when you want it with the amount you want um, you know, it makes you even think about, you know, your own food, you know, why not learn to start making your own food? Cause who knows, you know, what, what's going, going to happen down the road, or if some type of GI virus, um, something that's in, in the food supply, like, I mean, you just, things you just, we're not even thinking about right now. We're just thinking about respiratory illnesses. Well, some um, people are thinking about it because I, I just read an article today on how beans have become remarkably popular over the mm-hmm. last week or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, dried beans and lentils and all this stuff that that used to just sit on the shelves and the yes actually getting pulled off and and uh it was it was you know i'm not trying to make light of a situation but you got to find them humor where you can and, <laughs> uh 
uh, it just makes me laugh because um, beans are a wonderful food. Yeah. You know, and learning how to cook them. And I love beans, but, uh, and they don't go bad. And now people are like, uh, it was so funny. I can't remember where, maybe it was New York Times, but um, they're commenting on, you know, they have these like artis- artisanal white pears that are like, or white peach, I don't know, something that, and they're yeah. like, buying these because they're super expensive and organic. And then the beans, which have been sitting there and they're cheap, they're all sold out. And this, this bean farmer in California is like, you know, I used to be all alone at the farmer's markets and everybody, now everybody's buying this stuff. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it, yeah. uh, well, you might, you might have some gas um, if you're not used to eating all those beans, but your gut will eventually get used to it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I cut you off there. No, it was good for your microbiome. We haven't yes. talked about that ever, but, you know, getting all these different foods in there. So, and then you're home, right? And here's an opportunity. People all, I don't know how to cook. Well, here's your chance. Yeah, there's and YouTube videos. an amazing thing. If you have internet, like almost everybody does. And in our region, um, Comcast, actually, if you don't have internet, is giving you like a three-month free thing because they're, you know. Smart. Yeah, and, uh, and, there, and it is a, you can learn all sorts of stuff. Like YouTube is amazing. Like, uh, I'm not a huge YouTube fan because that's not how I learned, but my kids, man, they just look, you know, if they have a question about something, they look it up on YouTube and there's, mm-hmm. even, there's even a dedicated um, channel on YouTube. I think it's curated by Google. It's hmm. called like uh, YouTube learning or something. I should find it. Oh, that's I cool. heard about it the other day and they actually curate all these videos on, on everything from chemistry to cooking. That's great. Yeah. So there's lots and lots and lots and lots of resources out there. Yeah, I actually, um, my, what I found myself doing is going to the store and finding all the weird named vegetables that no one grabs and, and just buy them and like figure out what they are and then find a way to, (laughs) what's that? Quarantined orphan vegetable. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) well, and then people like spinach, they're buying up the bag spinach or the frozen spinach, but there was organic bunch spinach and i'm like well i'll just rinse those and i'll put them in the freezer so i can have some greens later and swiss chard yeah we're supposed to be rinsing everything anyway so right and and yucca i got some yucca root and i literally just peeled yeah and i like made mashed potato kind of stuff out of it (laughs) i made it i mixed it up with horseradish and chicken sausage and made like this montage of yeah my it was good it looked really good too and actually it tasted well, it good. sounds very really good actually <laughs> there's nothing but like a little bit of uh you know salt and sugar and and you know some kind of i usually don't use cow's milk much but occasionally and uh so yeah it was it was actually very yeah it's very good so i'll have to make it again now that i tried it once that's the thing you try it once and then you realize you should just do it again so uh, that, well i was just thinking some that's the that's the youtube stations should make is they, the, you know the 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 grocery store of misfit vegetables during quarantine right. you walk and just see what's on the on the shelves and then have your cooking channel devoted to well look we have a little yucca I don't yeah know what, it is, what is that <laughs> what does it have in it <laughs> yucca actually has a lot of nutrients so yes so yeah it's um that's a good one that's a definitely a good one and actually probably most of them that you can find are are probably the good ones mm-hmm. uh, anyway yeah, the things that are common that people, especially the pre-salad kit, you know, pre-made salad kits, those are like off the shelf in most places. But uh, yeah, there's there's ways to be creative and have some kind of novel experience, um, not just the novel coronavirus. There's some 
novel experiences because of it too. It never hurts to learn how to cook. No. I, I am, um, and maybe it's not like we had a ton of home ec when, when I was in high school. I, I know there was home ec, not a lot of people. I'm not sure how many people took it, but they don't even seem to have it anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, basic cooking skills are sort of like basic survival skills. Right. Right. And um, I'm, you know, if, if you don't know how to cook and then the restaurant's shut down, I guess you're ordering a lot of takeout, but that doesn't, I mean, if you really, really want to decrease your risk, you don't necessarily want to order a lot of takeout either because it's right. still the transmission there. So cooking, great yes. thing for your health. And, you know, we're, this topic for this episode is, is how healthcare or overall, you know, approaches to health are changing because of the coronavirus, but, you know, Food is medicine in, in its own ways, um, and there's a lot of complexity to that, but uh, you can do your body really bad, do bad things to your body um, if you just constantly eat, you know, Twinkies all day long. I mean, scurvy might be one of them, um, but, you know, there's, there's just so much benefit to sustaining a healthy immune system by what you put in your gut, which transfers, you know, this whole microbiome and affects your brain. I mean, every, every single cell, I mean, if you think about certain drugs that... <laughs> Uh, literally can like make your body turn blue. It makes you realize that what you ingest can get into every cell of your body. And there's a couple of drugs out there that amiodarone is one of them. Um, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it just shows you that everything you consume gets, you know, put into every cell in your body. You can actually see it with a pigment on, on some rare drugs. Um, but yeah, that's, there's, there was something else I was going to mention on the uh, benefits of nutrition. Well, and I think you've mentioned this before is just if you could so much of the stuff, if you could actually package the effects and put it in a pill and then label it, you know, uh, super food, foodium or something stupid, <laughs> right. And got the patent on it. Yeah. Uh, you'd have a, a multi-billion dollar drug and it, and people don't really comprehend like, like losing 10 pounds is as effective as a blood pressure medication. I mean, that just, okay, so you can lose 10 pounds through really diet predominantly and increasing your physical activity, which if you're sedentary, is not even, that's not hard to do, to, to do enough to, to lose. Start walking. <laughs> and then lo and behold, you don't need a pillow for the rest of your life. And the side effects are actually good mm-hmm. because I guarantee you, if you lose 10 pounds and your blood pressure goes down, you're actually decreasing strain on your heart. You're probably just, you know, those shear stressors. You're not going to have, uh, you're going to probably decrease your, your risk of having a heart attack for multiple different reasons. You're going to have different perfusion in, in the, the areas of the body. You're going to have better glucose uh, metabolism when you're exercising than when you're, when you're sedentary. So you have all these positive side effects first, or you can take the drug and get all the negative side effects associated with the drug to treat what you could do with losing 10 pounds. And, um, you know, so, so food is a big one. You know, the other, I call them the fundamental forward. You got, you got food, eat real food. And this is your perfect opportunity. You go to the grocery store, you find the orphan vegetables on the counter. (laughs) Beans if they're there and you start learning how to cook them. Move. Uh, Again, another opportunity here is if you're not under house restriction, which I think most of us aren't, you can go take a walk. That's good for your mental health. It's good for your physical health. It's one of the best forms of exercise that you can do. So moving some way every day. The other one's avoiding toxins and not just Corona virus, viruses and, you know, the COVID is, um, uh, making sure you're not smoking or drinking to excess or, or using a bunch of drugs and also making sure you're staying away from toxic environments and toxic people. 
Uh, and then, you know, sleep in, in, in restorative strategies where you're looking at stress, you're looking at sleep, you're looking at recovery, all those things. Those are, you could do all that stuff right now. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's, it's in many ways, if you're, if you're, you know, granted, there's going to be a lot of financial pressure with this stuff, but if you're home and you're stuck, you can start that process now and it'll help not only your physical health, it'll help your mental health and at least put you in a better position when we start emerging from, from the chaos that we're currently in. Yeah. I think um, all of those are awesome ideas. I think one, the one comment I wanted to make about there was some, some concern that kids are going to be out of school and not getting their education. I'm thinking to myself, of all the things that have been dropped out of the public health um, or the public school education um, is, is some of these real basic concepts. I mean, when kids don't even know where food comes from, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's so much opportunity to teach them how to change oil in the car, how to do yard work, how to, you know, make your own food, how to prepare your own food. You know, there's, there's so many other lessons in life that are way more practical. Um, Trust me, I've been on all the academic. I get the whole thing that it's good to have structure and it's good to learn things and to achieve and have set those goals and, and move, you know, have persistence. And, you know, I understand all those things are good, but, um, there's some real basic common sense stuff that you know, even Dr. Kevin just said is those are the things that our kids need to be uh, empowered with. Um, and so we can be role models uh, for and, children and, out there. And everything that you just talked about with education, structure, achievement, uh, and, and not achievement in a bad way, but, but really self-motivated achievement where you're, you're just like, um, you call it effort-based praise and, and really setting yourself a challenge that you're overcoming or not. And either way, you're learning really valuable skill sets from it. Um, we didn't talk about that. Maybe we should say that for another podcast. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, uh, there's, there's a lo- lot of, um, there's some potential for some significant positive change with education around this. Yes. Well. I think that I, should be our next episode. I, I, I would agree with you because I, I think... <laughs> Again, in crisis, there's opportunity and there's some, there's some big opportunities there from, from an education standpoint because that's going to get shaken up in a big way as well. I don't think that's right. really hit everybody. Well, at least probably in our brains as physicians thinking about that. But man, there's some big, 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 big stuff coming there. And that was a good segue for what I always like to say is the challenge doctors to see change within challenge. And we are definitely at a point of potential for good change, um, you know, in light of this challenge of COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, But uh, until next time, uh, we will obviously cover maybe some things when it comes to education and our children in relationship to this pandemic. I am Dr. Melissa Cady here with Dr. Kevin and looking forward to talking to you in the next episode. Until then, please go ahead, Dr. Kevin. (laughs) Stay well and socially distant. That's right. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Door Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five-star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.